Would you stand for the reading of God's Word? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as people exult when dividing plunder. For a child has been born to us, a son given to us, authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His authority shall grow continually, and there shall be endless peace For the throne of David and his kingdom, he will establish and uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time onward and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Well, tonight, a birth is about to take place. With great trumpet flare, Jesus is about to be born. We who have searched the heavens and looked for a Savior, we have been granted our wish. And tonight, we are blessed. We gather at this hour for a first glimpse at the day about to be. Not just any day, Christmas Day the birth of our Lord, and as stories go, this is a good one. The mystery of the star in the east guiding the wise men from far-off countries, Persia, Arabia, Ethiopia, even those countries take notice of this event. And there's a mystery around the birth itself. Joseph was just a bystander at this miraculous birth. Shepherds, cattle, a manger, which of course was actually a trough where the animals are fed. We've got the makings for an incredible story that is just a precursor, just an introduction, if you will, to the ministry that is ahead that will change the world. 38 minutes from now, we will walk out into Christmas Day. For us Christians, it is our one day with great gift-giving and joy and singing where we celebrate as our day of new beginnings when God has found us lost souls and brought us closer to home. Well, this great text from the book of Isaiah is a classic. It would appear on the top ten lists of great Christmas verses, and yet we must always take care to understand how the New Testament writers take Uh, used these uh, Old Testament verses and not force any kind of modern ideas onto them which were never intended. This text, written before the Israelites were carted, carted off to Babylonia, it's called a royal oracle. And you can read the history of these times in a book 
uh, in the book of Second Kings there in the Old Testament. If you ever want to get to sleep very quickly, just open Second Kings and start reading. It is better than sleeping pills, I must say. Uh, goes on and on and on. But the historical setting for this passage lies in 8th century Judah. The king on the throne is King Ahaz. King Ahaz was a weak king, religiously speaking. Israel looked forward to a new king, which would be a king that was supposed to be. Uh, This passage out of Isaiah 9 may have been delivered when Hezekiah, Ahaz's son, was born. Or more probably, say the scholars, when Hezekiah ascended to the throne about 715 BCE, before the current era. The prophet Isaiah is putting onto a child about to be born all of the great hopes and expectations of his country. The description we read is that of a good king. And the many attributes assigned to him reflect the ideas of kingship at that time. Wonderful counselor, mighty warrior, father for a long time, prince of peace. This is a religious description of the king in those times. It's not a prediction of someone to come hundreds of years later. Isaiah was not speaking about Jesus when he wrote this passage. No, Jesus was not in the mind of Isaiah when he wrote these beautiful words. But the gospel writers used this old passage to talk about the child about to be born to Mother Mary, to say that Jesus was a part of God's plan. So we're going to talk a little about prophets and prediction and what that means. The scholars I read say that the prophets from the Old Testament times did prophesy about the future, yes indeed, but it was always a future that was immediate, not hundreds or thousands of years in the future, but in the very near future. That's why prophets were not liked very much back then because in those times there was a strong belief that once a prophet or a rabbi or even a father opened his mouth to speak, they couldn't take back their words. So a blessing or a prophecy uh, of doom could not be taken back. When Isaac blessed Jacob, because Isaac tricked his brother, his, tricked his father into thinking that he was his older brother and firstborn Esau. He couldn't take that blessing back because he'd already spoken that blessing. Now, let's jump ahead several hundred years to the writers of the Gospels. We'll look at Matthew, for example. Matthew used this very text in his fourth chapter. And Matthew used it to his purpose, speaking to a Jewish audience. He said that Jesus fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah. Fulfillment and prediction, are they the same thing? 
Well, no, they're not, actually. For Matthew, one of the most important dimensions in the coming of Jesus was God's act of deliverance. Jesus fulfilled the essence of these words many years later because the people of Judah, to whom Isaiah was speaking, those people were looking for deliverance from God. And that's different, very different from predicting the person Jesus. Fulfillment in the minds of the New Testament writers was not the same thing as a literal prediction coming true. You just have to suspend your 21st century mindset for a little while. Fulfillment comes on a different level than literal. Jesus became our Prince of Peace. That's how a believing community sees him. He became the King of our lives. It was never intended for this Old Testament passage to speak about hundreds of years in the future to a time when Jesus was born, or even thousands of years later to our own day. But a believing community sees the words as speaking to their hearts and their hopes and their desires for justice and peace and love to reign in this world. So as the stories from the Jewish people were being collected and told again and again, it was the story of Adam and Eve that helped to explain that why there is hardship in the world, why we must toil for food from the earth, why there is pain in childbirth, why there are those out there who would deceive us and get us to act in ways that might get us in trouble. And the story goes that God sent out Adam and Eve from the garden to live in the real world with all its pains and heartaches and difficulties. But ever since that time, God has tried in so many ways to get us back to the garden, if you will. God wants to bring us home to the garden of delight. God used the burning bush to help Moses get his people to the promised land of Canaan. God used the prophets to reach out and speak, sometimes very harshly to his people, begging them to return home. And now God has once again put his hopes for us into this person of Jesus. God, in a new way, has been born into our midst. God, once again, has found us wandering about in the world. God, once again, has found us separated from him. God, once again, has found us and offers an answer to us. Return with me. Let us walk in paradise together like we once did in the Garden of Eden, the Garden of Delight. Are you in need of being found this night? Have you lost your way and are wondering how to get back 
on the right road? Well, recently, just really in the last couple of months, my Aunt Nancy, uh, my father's youngest sister, uh, was brought to Tulsa to live here. She lived in Phoenix, and she now lives in a nursing home facility in Broken Arrow. She's not in good health uh, right now, uh, and it's, it's just that time of life uh, for me that I have now entered uh, where I must begin taking care of my family members. Uh, my Aunt Nancy and her husband, Ray, Ray died this last February, they never had children. And so all of us cousins became their kids. And I can tell you that Nancy and Ray were our favorite uh, aunt and uncle. Uh, they were just so full of life. And they always played with us, always had a good time with us. So, of course, all of us cousins uh, just naturally uh, became glued to the two of them. So, at this time of life, it's really very, very sad for us because we've lost the Nancy of old. We have lost that robust woman uh, that all of us cousins love so much. Nancy was the life of every party, uh, the funny and delightful one. She was always a faithful United Methodist Church member in Los Gatos, California, uh, and in the Phoenix area where they lived for so many years. And now, well, now there are good days and there are bad days. On the good days, gosh, her memory is strong. And she can remember uh, with me uh, times that we spent together, and we can laugh about those days. And uh, the times when my Uncle Ray would, would take us out, and we'd scale mountains and swim in oceans and play golf courses all over California. That was great fun. And on the bad days, well, Nancy struggles to even form a sentence. She forgets to comb her hair. She can't recall anything she did that day. But I know in my heart of hearts that God has never left Nancy's side. His Emmanuel greeting is the same for her as it is for you and for me. You are my beloved, and in you I am well pleased. God found Nancy this year, a bit confused and dazed, but he offers her the same invitation that he offers to you and me. He wants our attention. How has God found you this night? Well, I'm always on the lookout for illustrations. Dr. Biggs would say that's where the rubber meets the road when it comes to sermon writing, and we hope we can always find just the right ones for us. Well, searching far and wide, I came across this wonderful little book here just in the last couple of weeks. Get this title, 52 Lessons from the Movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now, what could be better for tonight than that book? So I was flipping through every page just looking for the right kind of lesson. There's something in there I know that will, will come out. 
It's a Wonderful Life. It's got to be the most sentimental hogwash movie at Christmas time. You know, but guess what? That's lesson 47 in the book. It says, the world needs more sentimental hogwash. That's what it says. But no, 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 no. For tonight, I chose lesson 32. The essence of life is relationships. Bob Welch, the author, says it in this way. Poor Mr. Potter. He's Scrooge without the dream scenes. Yeah. (laughs) Joseph the angel calls him the richest man in the county, but in a materialistic sense. When we try to fill our emptiness with something other than what was intended, riches instead of relationships, we're doomed. At the end of It's a Wonderful Life, isn't that the fate of old man Potter, he winds up with nothing. And George, as honored by his brother, Harry Bailey, is toasted as the richest man in town, not because of that basket of money that's right there before him, but because he realizes more clearly than ever where true riches lie in relationships CBS Sunday Morning, got to be my favorite show on TV, uh, had a story recently on Sherry Turkle. You've never heard of Sherry Turkle, I know. But she wrote a new book called Alone Together. I love that title. Alone Together, Why We Expect More from Technology and Less from Each Other. Well, you you think you know which way Sherry Turkle's going to go with this book, but but what I like about her is she's not a person that wants to go around saying that the Internet is bad uh, and all technology connected with the Internet is bad. Not at all. She loves her smartphone and seeks a way to try to reclaim what we know inside to be helpful and good for us, like conversation and solitude and living fully in the moment. What she says in that book is that slowly and somewhat painfully, we are moving away from the gifts of community. We are allowing technology to be our community for us. And when we text each other and we are talking to each other, we think. And when we communicate through Skype, we see each other and think we have had a truly good visit. But I'm not so sure. We are like young lovers, Sherry Turkle says. We're infatuated with these new gadgets. And how many of us are going to get one tomorrow morning? But we forget that they are still very new in our world. And the problems that we've bumped up against, texting while driving, uh, texting while walking, texting while eating at the Christmas dinner table, I mean, all of that needs to somehow be filtered again and again through our good brains. We have the power to make adjustments. We're not victims here, not at all. 
Well, there was an experiment on college campuses in which students were asked to go without their smartphones, tablets, or other gadgets for 24 hours. How would you all do with that? I'm curious. You know, 24 hours, how could you go without that very important gadget attached to your hand? It turned out to be very, very hard for those students. One student wrote, I was almost freaking out. And another reported, sometimes I felt dead. How about that? A little extreme, I know, but that's what she said. What has happened to talking face-to-face? One person scoffed at the idea that a real conversation scares her to death because she can't control the conversation. How about that? It's too unpredictable, she said. So Turkle's solution, I flip to the last page. Occasionally, she says, put the device down, look another human being in the eye, and open up your mouth. Talk to your child, Turkle said. Talk to your partner. Talk to yourself. It's not about saying, don't use your phone. It's not about throwing away your phone. It's about how do we reclaim conversation. We have the power to make those adjustments and reclaim those things that can help us create and nurture community. So don't allow yourself to wind up alone together this Christmas. A conversation face-to-face is a good thing. And many of us are about to receive more technology gifts tomorrow. Technology can help us. I like my smartphone, but I love my family and my friends more. They are worth my time and effort. So risking a conversation is a good thing. And then there's that relationship with Christ, which needs time and effort too. For God, in a new way, has been born into our midst. God, once again, has found us wandering about in the world, separated from him, God has found us and offers an answer. Return with me. Let us walk in paradise together like we once did in the garden. Don't let that relationship become just a text. Look Jesus in the eye and open up your mouth and you will be closer to home because of it. Amen.